namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddham Dhammang Sangam Namasami It's interesting to contemplate what do we call ourselves? What is the idea we have about ourselves? Who are we? Who am I? What is this I? that we are so caught up in and that brings so much apparent inner conflict. And that's another question. Where is the conflict? Is it within us or is it outside of us? Actually, the conflict is not what we think it is. And this I, is not what we really are, it's what we think we are. But there's no such thing. There is no, no real I. There isn't a self. This is a fundamental teaching of the Buddha. And at first, maybe we have to just suspend our doubt that that might be true. And when we meditate, we have the opportunity to investigate, is it true? What am I? Who am I? What is this composite of the body and mind? And then we use this time of silence to listen, to listen and go deeply into the matter, to understand, just like an anthropologist who wants to study nature, creatures, what do they do? They go out and watch, maybe stay in a field for hours, just watching creatures in their different habitats or in the forest moving, watching them moving, or even watching human beings and learning about beings, about people uh, and their habits. Anyone who pursues in a scholarly way goes out and investigates what is actually happening. How do things behave? In a laboratory, people who study uh, microbes and look in a microscope and investigate how things behave, and they learn from that behavior. So when we meditate, we're learning about how this process of the mind, this mental process actually works. How does it behave when objects arise and we sit quietly and our mind is flooded with sense impressions at the five sense doors and in thoughts? How do we respond? How do these things occur in the mind? 
How do we observe them? And how do we respond? And our practice is dedicated to learning the truth rather than just believing from a very cursory and superficial understanding. The first thing that we might notice is that we get caught up in our thoughts. When we meditate, the thinking mind might feel even more powerful, more powerful than in normal daily activity. Suddenly we're besieged, attacked by memories or fears, worries, or all the things that we get besieged with through thought or through pain in the body, painful sensations that are unbearable and the mind is filled with that dukkha, the heaviness, the dire feelings that come when there's chronic pain. So this is our field of study. Instead of taking it personally, we might just see it as our field of study and just be aware. Keep awareness in the forefront of our consciousness. And how do we do that? This is where it's very important for us to see what is the way that we bring forth mindfulness? What is the proximate cause or the underlying condition? It's like when a gardener wants to fertilize a garden, you have to put down seeds. Before the plants even appear, there has to be good soil, and there has to be seeds and water and all those conditions we put into the plant. And when those conditions become ripe, then a little tiny, little green something shoots up. So in the mind, we want stillness, we want peace. We want to be able to preserve and stay in a state of happiness. And it's not coming, it's not coming, and we get frustrated. Or the kilesas take over. Achillesa. Do you all know what Achillesa is? A defilement. A hindrance. These Achillesas, these hindrances, they seem to be like trains, freight trains, steel bullets that penetrate deeply into our psyche and upend us constantly. We come back to the same kind of dilemma. Even when we've been on retreat and we go back into daily life and we see all the world in a flurry around us, we get very, very distraught and distracted by that. So what is it that can bring up a mindfulness which will persist and be continuous? sealed like a protection as if we were wearing a coat of armor that will protect us from thought that's not exactly what happens when mindfulness develops but if we can strongly know the object 
and not stop knowing the object instead of reacting to it, mindfulness has a better chance. And of course, that's going to be difficult because some objects are pleasant and some are not. So the breath, we might get used to the breath or we might get bored with the breath. But we have to learn to receive the breath exactly as it is. Now, there's a little paradox here because we're meant to be stopping. We're stopping the world. We're stopping going out towards the world. We're being contained within ourselves. We're focusing our mind inwardly, but then we don't stop. Then we begin our work. We cannot just sit back and let mindfulness do its work. We have to put in good causes and bring forth a sharpness, an astuteness, a warmth, an engagement with the objects. It isn't, especially in beginning stages or during times of stress and a lot of pressure in our lives or tiredness. Whenever kilesas are predominating, we have to put in that extra effort of focusing and of diligently observing the object, not taking our attention away from it. And we do this from a place of understanding how this process works. Just as if you're trying to start a fire by striking a match. There's always something that needs a little preparation. Everything has approximate cause, and so does mindfulness. So there is a word for that. And all the words that we can attach to mindfulness, like uh, sharp focus and attention, are accurate and important. But we mustn't forget this quality of atapa, which is an urgent kind of effort. It's an exertion. It's extraordinary. It has to be kind of intense. Instead of letting any of our effort leak out into, like, is this going to work? Asking questions, distracting ourselves with thoughts. We have to fully devote ourselves to this quality of warming up sati. Because if we don't apply it, it's this is a precursor for real mindfulness to take off, is we have to warm it up with atapa. And atapa has this same little word in it, pa, atapa, uh, just like pakandana, which is a word for the type of mindfulness we want to practice. It's a mindfulness that rushes towards the object. It doesn't look at it from a distance and say, oh yeah, there's another breath. That will never give us the kind of mind full of what is arising. The fullness of mind that is solely preoccupied, solely attending to, solely perceiving this object that is in front of us. Not in front locally, locationally, but with with consciousness, within the consciousness, within our ability to see or hear, taste or touch, 
or feel or think, like thoughts. If we're fully present for the thinking mind, then we can cut, we can govern, we can direct ourselves back to present moment awareness, to non-thinking. And we need this urgent exertion to do that. Otherwise, if we fail to bring in that kind of urgency and exertion in our effort to be present, then we cannot know the sabhava, the present moment arising, the present moment occurrence. We cannot know it, we cannot experience it enough to move from that directly into the next moment. There might be a slight dip in our continuous mindfulness, and in that dip will come what? Achillesa, the hindrance. Either a little bit of greed, like, oh, I like that mind state I had a few minutes ago, or a little despair. This isn't working. What else can I do? Maybe I should try a different lineage. I'll do the Zen practice or go stay with the yogis in India in the Himalayas. We think that if we live in a different place, up on a mountain somewhere, and the world is far from us, then our minds will function differently. But the good news, and also the maybe difficult news, is that the mind goes everywhere with us. Just like people who want to come live here. They think, oh, such a peaceful place, sanctuary. I don't have to worry about all the things of my life. I'll go stay in a monastery. But very quickly, because in, in the gate, with whoever comes in the gate, comes the mind with all its karmic load. And the karmic load is huge. It's enormous. We all actually, the world suffers from autoimmune disease. It consumes itself. And all of us have a certain level of locked in syndrome. And not to make light of that illness. But our locked in syndrome is a psychic one. We are locked in with our kilesas. Wherever we go, they trail behind us. We're chained to them. And if we practice true mindfulness, we move out of the kilesa field into a field of wisdom. And it's that movement that we need to practice more and more diligently. And the wisdom comes through this accurate, warmed up, heated up, I have to say heated up like a fire, mindfulness that is, moves as quickly as the light that comes from a fire, from flames. It's so bright and it's warm and it burns up the object as it sees it, it burns it up. It goes into that object fully and it knows this is empty. This is not what our concept has told us it is. And we see it for its truth, its elements. We see its elemental nature and we discard it immediately because there's nothing to land on. 
there's nothing there to really grasp that's worth grasping. It's all empty. So what are we getting so worried about, excited about, greedy about, sleepy about, exhausted by? What? What is so dull and what is so exciting? What is so beautiful and what is so horrible? What is so gratifying and what is it that we cannot bear? What is all actually when we examine it, when we see it for what it is, when we really understand it, we have respect. We have respect. We respect this is empty. And when I say the word respect, I mean we honor it for what it truly is. And when we honor it, we don't move away from it. It's when we move away from objects that we can no longer see them for what they are. So the whole point of being mindful is to stay present with the objects that are arising because this mind, this mental sphere is tied to the five sense doors and is really a field or a plane of receptivity. Just like the satellite dish that we have on our workshop, it's a big open dish and it's curved so that it receives a signal. And it receives the signal no matter what, broken signals, continuous signal, it just receives it and then it sends it down the line and we get it and we here we are on Zoom. But the satellite dish doesn't say, well, I'll take that bit of signal, but I won't take that bit. It just receives. If we could be more like satellites, satellite dishes, then this field of, of mental receptivity can do its pure function without any disruption, without any hindrances taking up our mental energy and tying us up in knots, then we would really be very equanimous with whatever conditions come forth, whatever conditions evolve, whatever conditions present themselves. And now, of course, with the satellite dish, the image breaks down because if a hurricane comes along and tears it off the roof and it's lying on the ground it can't work anymore and well so it is with this vehicle if we become sick and we have some organ defying illness then the mental stream may not function as well but when it is functioning well and we can practice this present moment awareness and know objects exactly for what they are then we can turn this field of kilesas, which in Pali, it's called a kilesa bumi. Bumi means an area like a field. And it also means virgin soil, like pure, pure earth, not earth element, but a, an area that is untarnished, unblemished. But 
we are so filled with greed, hatred, and delusion that most of the time our mental bumi is a kilesa bumi. And we want to turn it into a panya bumi, which means a field of wisdom. And if we can switch through mindfulness, switch into knowing the soil as pure and abiding in the purity of that, then the signals that we receive will not disturb that mental purity. It will remain unblemished, untarnished, and will help us to grow more and more wise because we are seeing things for what they truly are instead of reacting according to the untrained, ignorant mind. Always getting locked in by greed, locked in by ill will, locked in by our deluded ideas. Oh, this is this or this is that, but it isn't. We don't, we haven't stopped or we, we have stopped looking at it, but we haven't looked in the right way. We haven't come close. We haven't stopped enough to look and then looked without stopping. We've only looked partially and then we make up our minds. Oh, that's great. I'm going to have more. And then we're back with the self wanting an object. And the objects become the rulers of our life. We are ruled by objects and experiences. And we're driven by greed, by hatred, and by ignorance. But definitely mindfulness is a cure. And if we turn this kilesa bumi into a field of wisdom, then we work in that field of wisdom with a mindfulness that respects the objects. What does this word respect mean? It means, well, take it from the root of that, which is specter, spectate, to look, to see. And re is to look again, look more, look deeply then we respect and we honor. How does our mental field know the experience of sound? If our mindfulness is very astute, we just know it is sound, it's neutral. Or it might be painful, but we know the pain and we let it go and we move easily to the next experience. We don't become enslaved by that. But our attachment to pleasant or to become thrown off balance by unpleasant experience is really a running theme for many of us. And so we're beset with worry and restlessness, if not outright despair and anger, or painful feelings from the past that still linger deeply because they were so impactful. And we have to dig deeply to bring them forth now and see them in the light of wisdom to help us little by little heal, heal and seal up those fragments of our memory 
so that they don't haunt us anymore. In many ways, we're like a fragmented sat satellite, but there is, this is a practice of healing. So with diligence and with care and with skill, we develop this kind of pakanda, a mindfulness that rushes hastily to respect and know every experience and moment of awareness for what it really is. And in that extraordinary diligence and knowing, we have a freedom from those objects and experiences. We liberate ourselves through wisdom. We know them for what they are and we develop a calm. And uh, satipanya is a knowing mindfulness, a, a clear comprehension, an ability to contemplate our experience. We stay close to our own field of work, not paying attention to how other people, how they respond to us. We cannot really control that, but we can direct the way we respond to the world and the way we respond to our own world, our inner world. And that is the key. So this energetic mindfulness weeds out the kilesas over and over and over again. This has to be an effort that is continuous, exerted, unstoppable. We never stop with that, with that effort. We never stop with that level of mindfulness. And then we get a mindfulness, which is awikepa. It's undistracted samadhi. It doesn't give up just because we've changed postures. We maintain that stability of mind. We maintain that level of inner focus. We're not drawn out into the world. We're not striated by the world. It's as if we're made into spaghetti by worldly events. Noodles, a heap of noodles. But there is really, there's a, a cure for this condition. We need not be locked in in that way and defeated in our own life by conditions. And the more we do that, then we begin to taste the unconditioned in this moment. It's not something that is beyond us, far away. But the point of the path is to be able to sustain that. We want to sustain the earth. We want to ecologically achieve a sustainable environment of health and well-being for all of us, all creatures, all beings, and a balance in the elements. But we have to begin within us to sustain that undistracted samadhi. And we do that through a contemplative mode 
This is called Anupasana. It's a frequent contemplation of our experience. It's like regularly, always working from that place of Anupasana. We're contemplating what is it? What is it? We're knowing it for what it is. We're developing a garden, a field of wisdom. And in the Pali, it's called Panyabhumi. It's an actual Panyabhumi. It's something that we all can do. And if we want to do this, we have to be courageous. Many of us develop sensitivities and fear of objects, fear of experiences and sensitivities. And then the mind, through not deeply understanding that sensitivity, we begin to believe that the way to protect ourselves is to avoid what we believe brings about that sensitivity. And sometimes this in itself can turn into an illness. But the more aware we are of our weak points, instead of gauzing them up and padding them up with protective gear through avoidance, then we find that we're working from ignorance. How much are we responding to conditions because of a, a mind that is ignorant of their actual cause? What is it? What kind of illness is it? And what kind of mind is receiving it? Are we receiving it through a kilesa bumi or through a panya bumi? And are we knowing directly what is the cause of that dis-ease? This is very, very important. Because if we receive it through a kilesa bumi, we get more sick. Now, you're going to not believe this, but I've seen it. I've seen people heal themselves from very, very severe illness caught early enough before it damages organs through using this kind of exertion in mindfulness, healing their body of even lung cancer, healing their body of deafness. I've seen quite a few cases. But the point is not to have a perfect body. There's no such thing but to avoid some illness. And there are many other illnesses now. There's such a range of illnesses because we live in an environment and in a world that is out of balance, that naturally our inner balance is disturbed. But the potential for us to live in this world with a free heart, with greater equanimity comes through practicing in this way, practicing this kind of frequent contemplation, never stopping our contemplation. I'm always telling people to stop and meditate or stop and pay attention, but we stop in order not to stop. 
we stop the world in order to bring the Dhamma as the predominant force, the predominant focus for the mind. And that's a real turning away. It's turning away from what we believe is making us sick. It's turning away from those assumptions and challenging them just through present moment, full awareness, fully exerted, cont contemplating, respecting and honoring the elements just as they are, seeing them for what they truly are and marveling at the result in the heart. We can marvel. So this is something that requires rather than a laid back approach, it requires a proactive approach. Mindfulness cannot come from just casual noting or casually sitting and just letting things come and go as they will. We have to be proactive. We have to be on top of every single defilement that arises in consciousness so that the ignorant mind doesn't get a foothold, even a finger hold. It's so easy for the kilesas to slip in, to sneak in, to take over, just like weeds in a garden. Kilesas in a bumi of the mind creep in and cover our panya. Whatever wisdom we may develop, if we don't actively pursue it, it will easily become overridden with defilements. And then all our work, we have to, again, it's like when you shave your head, the hair, it all grows back and you have to shave it all again. That's it. What a wonderful practice. It's the same with the bumis of Kilesa and Panya. We have to keep weeding the mind over and over because we have contact with the world, just like our clothing. It has contact with the body and we have to put it in the wash. Imagine how soiled this soil of the mind, how soiled it can become just through contact with the world, just through thinking, unmindful, ungoverned, not contemplative. And when we're unmindful, our hiri and otapa go out the window. In fact, two of the qualities of the kilesas, bumi, of the field of kilesas, are anahirika and anotapa. It means there is no moral shame and no moral fear. It's as if we don't care which way the mind inclines. And we don't care about our unskillful actions that have been completed. We just don't take responsibility. But the mind that is wise and is fertilized with wisdom, with satipanya, that kind of a field of attention is so filled with hiri, with that sense of a conscience. Oh, I must be so careful not to harm any living being, not to harm ourselves, to respect, to honor this being in this moment just exactly as it is, and to bring healing forth 
through this interplay of moral conscience governing the mind so that we never never harm intentionally if we can as much as we can prevent harming anyone we work towards that and that state of harmlessness comes from knowing how harm arises and how it can be ended or prevented so we have to know the path intimately and intuitively and take it upon ourselves hastily an energy that is relentless and indefatigable it can never be exhausted until our dying breath we will not give up this path this way of being in the world through the dhamma and of course mindfulness is our gift to ourselves and to each other but this is not an ordinary mindfulness it's a pakanda pakanda mindfulness it rushes hastily towards the work of being present for things as they really are seeing them knowing them not being intimidated by that work and we make it our profession so it's something we engage in we don't sit back casually and just let the mind go where it will we're present moment by moment because who knows we could be dead any moment a lightning strike a bomb just something coming out of the sky we don't have that happening here but we don't know what life will bring to us one doesn't know what will come the world is like this so we must make haste and devote ourselves to what is worth being devoted to count our blessings and develop the path with earnest 